Now, brethren, as you look around you today, you see a much different picture in the church of God than you might have anticipated 12 or 15 years ago. The group is much smaller than you thought it would be. And some people who you thought would be here aren't. And some people that you didn't know or even think about are here. It's a different picture than you might have anticipated. As you look around the landscape in the world today, there are hundreds of small groups that purport to be God's church, each doing something that they consider to be very important, something that they refer to as the work, which we do certainly in the work that we're doing, a term that was used by Mr. Herbert Armstrong during the heyday of the Worldwide Church of God in doing the work of getting out the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, my purpose today is not to evaluate either to praise or condemn these groups at all. That's not my purpose at all. Thankfully, that's not my job or our job. God will judge. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Something very plain here that all of us should understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we see that we don't do the judging. God will judge. Now, since that's the case, it would be wise for these various works to examine their motives, their message, and their methods to be certain that they're doing God's will. Instead, this afternoon, I want to consider all of those thousands of people who have drifted off, who've left the way. Now, some have just hunkered down and uh, are doing nothing. Some have gone back into the world, embracing uh, false beliefs and traditions that uh, have uh, a pagan origin. Uh, Now, as we think about this, brethren, why did they falter? What caused them to slip? Why did they lose their way? Now, I think it's important to know why, to examine the causes, so that we don't make the same mistake, so that we don't fall into the same trap. Now, especially, as we've already heard today, we're approaching the Passover season, a time that all of us will be reflecting Uh, doing some self-examination, looking into the Scriptures to see how we measure up and what we need to work on as human beings. And so I think it's appropriate that we ask these questions and think about it today. Now, the Bible has a very descriptive phrase for what happens to us or what can happen to us as human beings. Let's turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 6. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Obviously talking about the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Therefore, To you who believe, he is precious. 
But to those who are disobedient, and my margin says who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So here it says that we can, as human beings, stumble. And there are stones of stumbling. Now, Peter was quoting Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. You can look that up in your personal Bible study. But that was a direct quote from those two places. Stone of stumbling. Uh, That's a word picture, I think, that's very clear. Clearly, a stumble is something that you can visualize. Today, let's look into the Bible and identify some stones of stumbling. Some things that might cause us as human beings a problem. The, we, we want to do that, brethren, so that we can avoid some of the problems that have taken such a terrible toll on God's people in recent years. The title of my sermon, you've probably guessed, is Beware the Stones of Stumbling. Let's look at the first one. Beware the stone of a negative attitude. A negative attitude. Many years ago in the church, when I first came into the church, I had a friend. We lived about 40 miles from where the church met. And so uh, each Sabbath, uh, I would, uh, he would ride with me and we'd go down to Sabbath services. Now, here's a man who had uh, a nice family, uh, healthy children. Uh, he had a, a steady job and so on. And as we would go down to services, this fellow, just, he just said, I'll, I'll never make it. He had a negative attitude. Uh, it's just something he couldn't overcome. Uh, over and over, he'd say, you know, I'll just never make it. I have so much to overcome. And he focused on the negative. Now, he repeated it so often that it affected his family. It affected his job. It affected his health. The man died in his late 40s just because he literally worried himself with this negative attitude into an early grave. Now, that's an extreme case, obviously. And yet, a negative attitude can certainly impact you. Now, what does it mean when I mean, say, negative attitude? It means to be apathetic. It means to be pessimistic. Now, a pessimist will tell you that, that, an, uh, that uh, a pessimist is just an optimist with all the facts, right? Well, but we want to have, obviously, a positive attitude. So, to be negative means to be unenthusiastic, unresponsive, contrary. When I was a little boy growing up, my grandmother would say, son, don't be contrary. Some of you have probably heard that expression. So that has to do with being negative. It means a questioning attitude. Now, clearly, when you look in the Scripture, you find a lot of biblical examples. I'm not going to turn to a couple of these because they're very familiar to all you students of the Bible. But think about the story of Cain, which you find in Genesis 4. Cain, obviously had a negative attitude, and when his sacrifice was not accepted, he rose up and killed his brother. And then when God asked him, uh, drew him out, um, Cain answered with this negative attitude, am I my brother's keeper? Obviously a sarcastic response, I think. Not really wanting to accept the responsibility for his terrible actions. Cain, I think, is an example of a negative attitude, maybe an extreme. And then, of course, you know the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 and how Esau uh, was flippant about his birthright and how he gave it up for a pittance. 
he, you see, was negative about it. It says in Genesis 25 that Esau despised his birthright. He didn't understand the importance of it, didn't acknowledge that. And look at the problems that it caused for his family and so on down through time. I would like for you to look at another example, though. Turn over to Numbers. Turn back to Numbers. And let's look at a classic example of a negative attitude. Numbers 13. Numbers 13. You know this story well. The children of Israel have uh, been brought out of Egypt, and now they're at the brink of going into the land of promise. What a wonderful uh, future lies ahead for them. And they're going to go in. God instructs Moses to have them go in with the leaders from each tribe uh, to do some reconnaissance, to go in and see what it's going to be like, to case the place as it were, to spy out the land as referred to in Scripture. And so uh, they went into the land of promise and were there for 40 days. And they came back, and then we'll pick up the story in verse 27. Numbers 13, verse 27. Then they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. Just a beautiful word picture uh, of a, a land of plenty, as it were. And this is its fruit. And, you know, earlier in the Scripture, it talked about this one bunch of grapes that was so large that they had to carry it on a pole between two men. He says, and this is its fruit. So uh, they had this wonderful thing that they had looked at. Now look at verse 28. Nevertheless, you see, there was there were some problems there. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. There were giants in the land. Now, uh, as we go on, look down at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb had faith. He realized that God had promised this land to them. And he said, of course, we can do this. Let's go in. We're, we're able to take the land. But let's look at what happened with a negative attitude. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Verse 32. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw are men of great stature. So they had this negative attitude, this negative report. And what was the result? What was the result? They didn't follow God's instructions. And then they lost that reward, and for 40 years they wandered, and everyone above age 20 died. Pretty serious consequences for a negative attitude. And certainly it affected them for a long, long time. Let's turn over <clears throat> to uh, another familiar account. Turn over to 1 Samuel. Let's, let's look at the example of Saul. 1 Samuel, fascinating book and story. The first king of Israel. And a story that you all know so well. You learned it as children about the... Philistines and the giant, and you know the story. But let's take a look at it this afternoon. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. <clears throat> now, in the first verse it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and it tells the different places that they were. 
And verse 3, the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and a valley between them. So you have this word picture, these two great armies, one on one hill, mountain, and one over here in the valley in between. And you know that the, the great giant came out every day and taunted the children of Israel. And what was their approach to that? They knew that God was on their side. But in 1 Samuel 17, verse 11, it says, Then when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. A negative attitude. Now, you know the rest of the story, of course, where the young shepherd boy comes in who has faith in God, who's been prepared for situations just like this, and he had a completely different attitude. And you know how it turned out. And, of course, David became the champion. And God was able to use him later on in such tremendous ways. Let's look at another example here in 1 Samuel. Turn over to 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, again, it involves David. David at this time in 1 Samuel 25 is on the run. King Saul is out to try to kill him, to keep him from being installed as king eventually. And so David is on the run with his band of men. And so uh, in 1 Samuel 25, uh, we pick up the story in verse 4, and we see <clears throat> that uh, this man, wealthy man, uh, Nabal, was uh, shearing sheep. And we pick it up in 1 Samuel 25, verse 4. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And said, David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And David had, with his men, protected this man's holdings out in the wilderness, his sheep and his cattle and this sort of thing. And now he was going to ask them and did ask them to share with them and to provide some food and so on. But let's see what this man uh, did. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> Actually, verse 6 is what they requested. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity. Nabal, you see, was very prosperous. Peace be to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. And then we pick up the story down in verse 10. What was Nabal's response? Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. You know, a real insult. A real insult to David. Verse 11, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men that I do not know where they are from? So again, he refused. He had this negative attitude. And when you think about it, it was a pretty dumb attitude. <laughs> because here was David uh, with these armed men. He made a reasonable request and he was refused. It's interesting that Nabal means fool. The man's name meant fool and he certainly lived up to his name. Now, uh, later we see Again, I hope that you'll read all the details of the story. My point is just to look at the fact that he had a negative attitude. Uh, drop down to verse 37. We see that he died of an apparent heart attack. 1 Samuel 25, verse 37. It says, <clears throat> So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Again, an extreme example of a negative attitude, but I think it shows what can happen. 
how it can affect you, how it can affect others. And certainly, it had a terrible effect on Nabal and cost him his life. Now, we can look at other examples in the Old Testament, but let's look at some in the New Testament. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Here's a familiar example to you. Somebody that we can all relate to and and understand, I think. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 38. Here we read about Martha and Mary. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So Jesus is now in their home, and he's teaching, and Mary is listening. Verse 40, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Doesn't this sound like a couple of sisters, right? (laughs) You folks that have sisters, you know. I'm having to do all the work, you see. Therefore, tell her to help me. And let's see what Jesus said to her. What was his answer? And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. So we see that Martha, at this point, overlooked the big picture and had a negative attitude about what was going on. And yet, Jesus corrected her, and certainly as we read other scriptures, it seems obviously that she overcame that. She became one with a positive attitude. So certainly something we can relate to, but hopefully we can learn the lesson that Martha learned and take the admonition that Jesus gave, and that is to to seek his words and to seek his kingdom. Let's turn over to John. Looking at lots of scriptures today, but they tell the story. Let's look at another person who had a problem with a negative attitude. John chapter 20. John 20. We'll begin in verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, you know the story. Jesus, uh, at this point, has gone through the trial. He has been crucified. He has died. He's uh, now resurrected and has appeared to the disciples. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Can you imagine their excitement? And they were just thrilled to tell him about this. So he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I mean, you have to say that was a negative attitude. He didn't believe them. He he obviously uh, was a skeptic at this point. But drop down. Further, and you'll see that uh, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Verse 29 Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I'm sure Thomas learned his lesson. And certainly uh, he hopefully overcame that. 
and was positive about this sort of thing. And yet he had that, that tendency, I think, to be negative. There's another classic example of negativity. Let's look at John 12. John chapter 12. And here we read about Judas. Judas, one of the twelve. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We'll start in verse 3. This was right before the Passover. And uh, they made him a supper, it says in verse 2. And Martha served. And picking it up in verse 3. Then Mary, John 12 verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. A very expensive uh, thing and, and uh, obviously a sacrifice for her to, to show her love and respect for Jesus. Look at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Very negative about this beautiful act that she has done. This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. So we see here that uh, Judas' attitude was questioning. It was negative. It was accusative. And of course, you know, carried on out later on, he did betray Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, we could look at others. But I think you see the danger in having a negative attitude. Now, let's look at the other side of the coin. Turn back to Proverbs. Proverbs 15. As God's people, certainly we should cultivate a different approach. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, verse 13. Here's a scripture that's familiar to you, I'm sure. Proverbs 15, verse 13. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance uh, or face. In other words, whatever's in your heart, you can generally see on your face. You ever notice if you have a smile on your face, people will generally smile back at you. (laughs) If you have a scowl on your face, it's not long before they're scowling back at you. I find that to be the case. And certainly, uh, it says here that a merry heart, a cheerful person, you see, makes a cheerful countenance or face. But by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Brethren, it takes a, it takes a, a positive attitude to have a cheerful countenance, to have a merry heart. Turn over a page to Proverbs 17. It says that, uh, something similar. But just to, to, uh, Drive home the point. Proverbs 17, verse 22. Proverbs 17, verse 22. A merry heart, again, that cheerfulness, that positive attitude, does good like medicine. And certainly there are times when we need something to maybe relieve the pain or to help us in some situation. But a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. You don't want your bones to be dry. <laughs> you want them well lubricated. You want them to work well. You don't want them to hurt. And certainly it takes, again, a positive attitude to have this merry heart and this cheerful attitude, something that we, of all people, should have. Now, let's turn back to Joshua. Joshua, who took over at the death of Moses in leading the children of Israel. Turn back to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. 
and verse 9. This whole book is about having courage and having a positive attitude and doing the things that God would have us to do. And I think this verse should bolster all of us, brethren. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. God speaking to Joshua says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. We might plug in here, don't be negative, you see. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think if we have that understanding, if we have that realization, then we can be positive. We can have courage. We can be strong in the faith and strong in facing what life hands us to deal with. And brethren, I hope that this can bolster us. And, and read the whole book of Joshua. And over and over, it brings that out. That's what God would have us to be as His people. Positive, encouraging, and not dismayed. Now, let's turn over to the New Testament and see another scripture that really drives this home. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul writing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Again, very familiar scripture to you. But I think, brethren, this, just as Joshua should bolster us, this should sustain us. This scripture should really help us. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I hope that we have that memorized, brethren, because, you know, some days are diamonds, some days are stones. Some things, days things don't go well. Sometimes it seems that everything is turning against us, whatever it might be. And yet the Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I think that is a marvelous thing that can help us all to maintain a really good attitude. I have uh, a little, uh, it's not a poem, but it's a saying here that, that I have read over the years, and I'd like to share it with you. It's entitled Attitude by Charles Swindle. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It can make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are all in charge of our attitudes. Brethren, don't let the stone of a negative attitude cause you to stumble. Let's look at another one. Beware the stone of pride. Now, to have pride, I'm sure you know what it means, but I always like to start with a definition. To have pride means vanity. It means cockiness. It means self-importance. To be arrogant. To be overconfident. Now, you might think, well, I, I really don't have a problem with that. And yet, we all know that in human nature, as we were taught by Mr. Armstrong, is human nature is vanity and jealousy and lust and greed. And vanity is right at the top. 
And mankind's history is the story of pride and the consequences of actions based on pride and vanity. So it's something that we do have to consider. One of the early characters in ancient history was Nimrod. Turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 10. Fascinating study. We only have a glimpse here, and yet secular studies and so on really show us the impact that Nimrod has had on our society. Genesis chapter 10. Here it lists the offspring of Noah after the flood. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, it says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. See, here was someone who uh, had people looking to him rather than to God for protection, for uh, all sorts of things. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord or in place of the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, Ur, Kela, and Resin between Nineveh and Kela. That is the principal city. So it, we, we see this and we realize that he was the first one to start city-states and to begin to proliferate man's government on the earth. And uh, if you uh, really study into it, you'll see that his imprint on society today is, is uh, all about us in the traditions that we see in the world today. Nimrod was motivated by pride. You can see it in his actions. And certainly it caused a great deal of difficulty when you see the cities that he founded and realize uh, later on how they connect with Babylon and uh, Nineveh and some of these things, how they played out in time. Let's go over to uh, the book of Jeremiah. has an awful lot to say about pride and being proud. Jeremiah, chapter 13. As we consider the stone of pride. Jeremiah 13. <clears throat> Jeremiah 13, and verse 15. It says, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God, before he causes darkness, before your feet stumble, the subject of the sermon today, on the dark mountains while you are looking for light. And so we see that he says, do not be proud. And certainly as human beings, we have to be on guard against that. You certainly all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a part of their problem that you may not be aware of. Let's look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16. Here it's talking about God's relationship with Israel, and he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Again, you can read the verses that go before, and it's talking about the history of Israel and how God had worked with them in an allegory, an analogy here. And we pick up the story here in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. He said, look. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Now we think of the sexual immorality and we think of the perversion and all that that's described in the Scripture. But here in this account it points out that they had pride. Fullness of food, an abundance of idleness, 
Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So the poor and needy were being neglected. And all of these other things were going on. Look at verse 50. And they were haughty. You see, there's that aspect of being proud. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. And I took them away as I saw fit. Clearly, this is not something that's pleasing to God. In this extreme case, he took them away, destroyed the city and all the people that were in it. And a big part of the problem was pride. Now, again, Solomon wrote an awful lot about this in the book of Proverbs. Let's go back there. Proverbs 16. These are scriptures that you know so well, brethren. I hope you don't mind looking at them again because I think every time we look at them, we can learn. Life's experiences, the things that are going on in our life, we read the scriptures and we get a different facet, something that we may have overlooked, maybe a new impact or a new meaning for us. Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, my margin says before a stumbling, you know, being tripped up, being tripped up. Rather than as we read this, we can see that uh, a haughty spirit will cause you to stumble. It will bring you down. And it happens a lot even today in people's physical lives and in the church. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Now, I'm sure that in this room we probably have some list makers. I'm a list maker. I have a to-do list. And uh, I'm sure that all of you like to make lists about, you know, that way you can say organize. Well, God make li makes lists. And here we find a list, a list of things that God despises. Let's look at this. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. Now, if it's an abomination to God, it ought to be something that we are concerned about, something we don't want to have anything to do with. Let's look at it. Verse 17, a proud look, the very first one, tops on God's list of things that are an abomination to him is pride. A proud look, a lying tongue, obviously uh, uh, breaking one of the basic Ten Commandments, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, I think that describes our society today. Verse 19, a, wit, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Very important that we avoid that. It's, it's uh, really important that we avoid that. So <clears throat> clearly, this first one, though, is pride. The top one. And brethren, we need to be on guard against that. It can creep into our lives in a way that might catch us off guard. Now, let's, let's look at some New Testament examples, since this is so important, and it's mentioned over and over in Scripture. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 9 of Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. <clears throat> also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, this is the key, brethren. They, they trusted in themselves the essence of pride. They weren't looking to God. They weren't looking to others. They trusted in themselves. And here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and I'm sure he just kind of spit this out, or even this tax collector, you know, in the same room, oh, you know, just, just disgusting. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You see, he's justifying himself and praying to himself, really. Look at verse 13, completely different approach. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, brethren, we have to be careful not to trust in ourselves and in our own righteousness. We have to look to God. We have to do as this tax collector and realize how far short we fall. I think as we prepare for the Passover, that's a good thing to keep in mind as we do our self-examination and so on. And at all times, realize that we have to grow and overcome and not fall into a self-righteous, prideful attitude. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 16. Here's some instruction on how to get along with others, how to get along in society and your family and wherever you are. Romans 12, verse 16. It says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. You see, being willing to to associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now, the longer we live and, you know, we, we have life's experiences, we tend to think, well, I know all the answers. Well, obviously, as human beings, none of us know all the answers. The answers are in this book, and we have to dig them out. But we want to be very careful not to be wise in our own opinion. And then just another facet of that is found in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5 tells us something very specific that we should avoid. Galatians 5, verse 26. Let's start in verse 25, just getting the context. Galatians 5, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit, meaning to live, the way we carry out our lives, the way we walk through our, our day. Verse 26, here it is. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, we are not to be conceited. I don't think it's a huge problem, but because it's found over and over in Scripture, I think it's important that we focus on it because it can happen. It can happen. And when we maybe least expect it. So we have to be on guard against that. Now, I mentioned uh, all the, the various groups and so on. I think James has an interesting warning, not just to, uh, well, it's for all of us. Let's look at James chapter 3. James chapter 3. James, the Lord's brother, has some instruction here for us. James chapter 3. 
James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. You know, lots of times people want to be teachers. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble. That's the subject today. We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. And you can read the rest of it. But clearly, we have a, a stricter judgment as teachers. And that's a serious thing. We want to take that responsibility seriously. I know that I do. And I know the people here at headquarters take that, that very seriously and want to do the right thing always. Pride. A know-it-all attitude. Failure to get recognition. Being self-righteous and judgmental. These attitudes have caused many people to stumble. Now, what should our attitude be? You already know the answer. But let's look. Look at Luke chapter 14. What should our approach be? We're not to be prideful. Let's look at the words of Jesus Christ. Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 7. Here we have a parable of Jesus. Luke 14, verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give up, give place to this man. And you begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes by, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Here's the key, brethren. I ask the question, how should we be? What should our attitude be? Verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Brethren, humility is pleasing to God. Let's look. Let's look at another one. The third one. Beware the stone of prosperity. Beware the stone of prosperity. Let's look back at Deuteronomy. Today in the Bible study and so on, we've looked back in the Old Testament and we looked in Deuteronomy. Let's look again. Deuteronomy chapter 8. God wants His people to prosper. And He talks about this here, but He also gives a warning. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. For the eternal your God is bringing you into a good land. We talked about it earlier. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills. Certainly, having clean, fresh water is essential to being able to occupy an area and to be prosperous. Verse 8. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, on pomegranates, a land of olive oil, and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. And here's the warning, brethren. Verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments 
his judgments and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, and when your heart is lifted up and you forget the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. He said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to have this prosperity. But when you're full and when you have everything that you need, don't forget the source of your blessings. Don't wander away from my commandments. And then verse 18. This has been a very special verse for me. I have it framed and hanging in my office and have had for many years. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18. And you shall remember the eternal your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Brethren, we certainly, God wants us to prosper. And yet, as we do, we should not forget the source of our blessings from whence it comes. And we should always be careful to follow him. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. We have some wonderful examples in Scripture that really help us stay uh, focused. Luke chapter 12. And verse 15. Luke 12. And verse 15. It says, And he said to them, Jesus speaking here, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And yet, as human beings, how do we size people up? How do we size them up? By what they wear, by what they drive, by where they live, by what they have. I mean, it's it's human nature. This is what we do. And Jesus says, yet that's not the measure of a person. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Isn't it true that those who have get? (laughs) Have you noticed this? So this guy's already rich and he's going to get richer, it seems. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. Hey, good businessman, time to expand. You see? And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, and I like to put self in here, I will say to myself, Self, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink. And be merry. And we'll see, this is where he got off track. Up to now, everything's fine. Up to now, it's going according to plan. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, fool. Brethren, if God says you're a fool, you're in trouble. Fool, this night your soul, your life will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? And here's the key. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, his goods, his prosperity, his stuff came between him and God. If he had used his substance to serve others, it would have been fine, and he could have enjoyed that as well. But that was not the case. Look at verse 34. Luke 12, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a spiritual principle, brethren, 
and I'm sure that you understand it. But this man that's written in the parable overlooked that, and it cost him his life. Let's look back at another example of a wealthy person. Matthew 19. Wealth is a good thing, and God would have us to have that. And yet we have to have it in proper perspective. And the Scripture gives us that proper perspective. Matthew 19 and verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Well, Jesus answers the question, but first he straightens him out. He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So the fellow wants to argue about it. Verse 18, he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? A little self-righteousness going on here. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. What happened, brethren? What happened? He says, when his disciples heard it, I'm sorry, just a moment. And then when the, verse 22, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Brethren, he choked. He stumbled. At this point, you see, he had all these possessions. He couldn't give that up. Jesus knew that was his weakness, and that's why he asked him to do what he should do. Verse 23, carrying on, it said, Then Jesus said to his disciples, this was a learning moment for them as well. Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. You see, these men had some substance. They had thriving businesses before they were serving with Jesus, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can show you, brethren, how to handle your prosperity and how to use it in his service, certainly having the things that you need and want and hopefully many of the things that you just desire. And yet, it's certainly something that we have to use in a godly way. And the Scriptures make that very, very plain. Now, let's turn back to 1 John. Again, getting the biblical view on the physical things. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John two fifteen. Here's the key to not uh, stumbling over prosperity. 1 John 2, verse 15. John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, my, there's a lot of that. Hard to, hard to miss these days when all inhibitions are gone and all the barriers are down uh, in entertainment and literature and whatever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, It's what the advertising business thrives on, you know, the new, bigger, better model. Is there anything older than last year's model, you see? 
uh, planned obsolescence, uh, uh, the lust of the eyes, having more. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. That's what this world doesn't understand. It all seems so permanent. It all seems like it's just going to last. Everything's going to go on as it is. And yet we realize that the world is passing away and the lust of it. Here's the key for us, brethren. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Brethren, if we love God and His way, He will provide. And He will show us how to use the prosperity that He would have us to have. Brethren, let's press on. Let's look at number four. Beware the stone of obligations. The stone of obligations. A misunderstanding of what's truly important can, can prompt one to make excuses. Turn back to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. Again, a familiar story to all of you, students of the Bible. Luke 14, we'll begin in verse 16. Here, again, Jesus giving a parable. Luke 14, verse 16. says, Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Big party here. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. Let's look at this. The first one said, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I asked that you have me excused. Uh, it's unlikely that the man bought this ground without doing his due diligence, without having walked over it. But this is his excuse. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. Again, it's doubtful that he bought these oxen sight unseen. <laughs> you see, I'm sure he'd check their hoof and mouth, you know, to see if they were in good shape. But his excuse, you see, is to do this. Still another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Now, this may be the flimsiest excuse of all. Which of you ladies do not like to go out for dinner? <laughs> and yet he said, we can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and there's still room. Then the master said, go to the, uh, said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these who were invited shall taste my supper. Brethren, as we think about this, land, acquiring land, dealing with land, developing land, business, farming, it can be a passion. It can be a passion for someone. Oxen, livestock, today equipment, tools, maintenance, upkeep, financing. Um, again, it can be a passion and it can soak up people's time, their talent, their energy, so that there's nothing left. Marriage, the relationships there, a lot of details, a lot's required. Now, none of these are wrong. None of these are wrong. It's a matter of priority. If these things crowd out 
your spiritual obligations, if these things take the place of pursuing first the kingdom of God, then the stone of obligations may cause one to stumble. Turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, just say, no matter what, I'll follow you. Verse 58, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Christ's emphasis in his life was not on that physical. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So, certainly as these people were dealing with Jesus, their one was concerned about a place to live. Now, we all have to have shelter and so on, but this was the primary thing in this person's mind. Then, certainly we have family obligations. I've been dealing with that in my own life, and I know many of you have, as your parents get older and things that have to be done to provide for them. Well, there are family obligations that we, that we have to deal with. And these can be dealt with within the framework of serving God. You don't have to neglect one for the other. It can be managed. God will make that possible. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Brethren, the life that we're called to live has a very high price. A very high price. We read about it here. Matthew 10, verse 37. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, his burden, whatever that might be, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So, brethren, as we read these things, we see that there is a very high price to serve God and to pursue the kingdom of God. But it's worth it. It's worth it. God makes it possible, and it is worth it. God does not expect us to neglect any of these things. None of them. But He does require that we put Him first. That's the requirement. He requires that commitment. God has not and cannot use drifters. He requires a commitment. And certainly we have to have our priorities if we are to to make it into his kingdom. Now then let's look at number five. Beware the stone of false teachers. Now the scripture has a lot to say about false teachers. Are all of the groups and churches and associations and schools and ministries and works legitimate, genuine, true churches of God? I think that's a fair question. Is that, are they all the genuine article? 
Let's let the Bible answer the question. Turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah, beautiful words of the prophet of Isaiah. I wish I understood them in the original, but they're beautifully translated into English. Isaiah chapter 8. Here's the benchmark. Here's how we can know. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And certainly, brethren, you're disciples. You're the ones who are studying and learning. Drop down then to verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So there's the key, brethren. There's no light of inspiration or revelation from God if it departs from the law and the testimony. That's the benchmark. And so when something comes along and you want to know if it's genuine, see if it squares with God's word in every detail. And you can know. That's the, that's the, the benchmark. Now, let's turn over to Matthew 7 and see a classic warning from the Messiah. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 15. This particular uh, stone is, Beware the stone of false teachers. And Jesus Christ gave that same warning. In Matthew 7 verse 15. Matthew 7 verse 15. Beware of false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing. I always think about that as a nice wool suit. I don't know. (laughs) Who come to you in in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You said they are not what they appear. They can be slick and smooth. And yet, they're inwardly ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, you gardeners out here know the answer. The answer is no. You know, you want to plant good stock of whatever it is to get the, the fruit you want. You don't get grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Verse 17, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. He goes on to say that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and thrown into the fire. And so here's the bottom line, brethren. Here's how you know. Verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Clearly, this is this classic warning. Now, brethren, to know if those fruits are good, you have to know the Scripture. You have to do your homework. You have to see what is happening and what fruit is being born. But it's by the fruits that you know them. Now, let's... uh, Press on and look at uh, verse 21 because he goes on and gives some more details, some things that we can be on guard against. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that time, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Think about it, brethren. There are whole channels on television today that are devoted to to religious matters. You have every uh, kind of 
um, a religious service and preacher and, and so on that you can imagine. And some of them are very good and very charming and present, you know, really inspiring talks. And yet, clearly, uh, just using the name of the Lord and talking about Him it does not make them genuine. That's not what determines. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You know, you might think, how could that be? They talked about the Lord all the time. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What this is saying, brethren, is actions reveal a lot more than words. Because you hear a lot of talk about the Lord. And praise the Lord. And all of this sort of thing on television and radio and and in the local paper and so on. What you have to look for, of course, is are they following the Scriptures? What is the fruit that they're bearing? Are they doing what the Scripture said? Actions reveal a great deal more than words. Let's go on with verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended. The floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Every good builder knows that the foundation is essential to building the house or or any kind of structure. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, and that's what we hear a lot of, a lot of conversation but not a lot of action, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, uh, some can stand the test of time and the elements, others cannot. And the works that you see out here, brethren, those that don't stand the test of time, who don't stand up to what's coming, will know are false. Clearly, uh, we have to be doing what Jesus Christ said and not just talking it. We have to walk the walk as well as talking the talk. Let's turn over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> and we'll begin in verse 13. Matthew 15. Verse 13. <clears throat> but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Now all of you gardeners are thinking about planting because it's getting warm, the days are getting longer and so on. And here it's using that analogy. Uh, if God doesn't plant it, it's not going to last. Let them alone. Talking about... Um, these other groups and so on. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Brethren, I think time will tell on some of these works whether or not, uh, uh, you know, if they take root. I think that the, it says here that they're going to, you know, the, if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. The ditches will be full. Because there are a lot of people that are leading people in the wrong weather. Now, how should you, brethren, and I deal with these other groups that may be out there that might be attractive? You know, you get on the Internet and there's every every ilk, every sort of thing, you see. Uh, how, how should we deal with that? Um, a wise man of the time 
back in biblical times, gave some good advice. Let's take a look at that in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Here we read about Gabaliel giving advice to the people then that were trying to make some decisions, knowing what to do. Acts 5 verse 34. Acts 5 verse 34. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Judas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many, uh, drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Time will tell if these various groups are being of God. What we have to be concerned about, brethren, is that we are following the Scriptures and doing the things that we should be doing as God opens our understanding to it to do these things. Now, let's turn over to Philippians as we press along. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. As we think about these things. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writing to the Philippians. Philippians 1, verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. There are some with right motives out there, and there are some with wrong motives. But certainly we could just leave them be and do what God has called us to do at this time. Very, very important that we do that. Now, brethren, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, as we come to a close this afternoon. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Everyone's work, yours and mine, will be put to the test. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are all God's fellow workers. You know, we use that term. We're co-workers. We, we work together to do the work. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Up down to verse 13. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive the reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Look at verse 17. 
If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. A stern warning at that point. So, brethren, how do you determine which are genuine? We've talked about it. You get to decide based on the fruits. As someone here told me a while back, he's a fruit inspector. You see? So, inspect the fruits. I think that's a good term. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 6. Again, Paul writing here. Galatians 1 verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what you have preached to you, we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Brethren, listen and analyze and weigh the words and actions of our teachers, of Dr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, Dr. Ronell, myself, others. Um, uh, and if we preach anything other than the truth once delivered, you know what to do. But as long as we preach and teach and practice the message that Jesus Christ brought, then focus on this church and the work and support it with your whole heart. Brethren, there are stones of stumbling which you need to be on guard against. We've looked at the stones of a negative attitude, the stone of pride, the stone of prosperity that might trip you up, the stone of obligations and of false teachers. Now, there are others which we can look at at some other time. But as God's people, you do not need to worry about these things if you do a few simple, not easy, but simple, not complicated uh, things. Turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We have the instruction on how we should be. John chapter 11, verse 9. Hear Jesus' words. John chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Brethren, as we go forward and prepare for the spring holy days, walk in the light of God's Word, and you will not stumble. Uh, I'll just quote this one. It's one of my favorites. Psalm 119, verse 165. Very important memory verse for me. Great peace have those that love your law, and nothing will make them stumble. The King James says nothing will offend them. The New King James, nothing will make them stumble. Very, very important. And then please turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren... Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Brethren, as we go on toward the kingdom, there will be many stones, but none should make you stumble 
if you're walking in the light. 